The impulse to preserve is a powerful motivator, and it's behind the conversations we're about to have in the hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Peter Manceau joins us in a bit to describe journeys that people have taken over the centuries to view the relics and remains of people venerated by many religions and cultures. Only now is it really possible to ask a question about their authenticity and to really find an answer. Today, we'll look at relics in a 21st century light to see what they still have to say. Many travelers find that preserving their trip in a journal makes the best kind of souvenir. Dave Fox joins us to share his tips for writing a good travel journal. A well-written travel journal is going to collect your memories better than anything else I can think of. And we'll start with a look at the sometimes hilarious language barrier between Americans and Brits. Chris Ray helps us suss out how ancient expressions live on as slang today. Bob's your uncle. Relics, journaling, and British English. It's all just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Hi, I'm Rick Steves, and this is Travel with Rick Steves. After living in the U.S. for a while, Scotsman Chris Ray decided that we Yanks needed some help with the English language, particularly the way it's commonly spoken back in Britain. He's published a natty little guide to the slang that separates us from our mother country, and Chris joins us in a moment to sort it all out. Then, Peter Manso explains the power of relics and how these religious symbols still carry more weight than you might expect. You might even say that these pilgrimages were the earliest foundations of tourism. And we'll finish off with some pointers on writing a travel journal in a way that just might make it your most treasured souvenir. A lot of people are kind of stressed out about the language barrier, so they go to Britain. And when they get to Britain, they realize there's a language barrier. In fact, Oscar Wilde said... America and Britain are two nations divided by a common language. I'm joined today by Chris Ray, who's written a book about the language barrier Americans will experience when they go to Britain. Chris, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Your book is called The Septic's Companion. An American has to ask right off the bat, what do you mean by septic? I think of septic tank. Yep, and and you would be right thinking of that. To explain the title, I guess I have to explain a little bit about Cockney rhyming slang. Okay, so these are the people that live sort of working class down the down the river in London, right? Exactly. Okay. I think I think technically it's people who were born within the sound of Bobell's Church or okay. that kind of thing. Uh, so Cockney rhyming slang is, is a wordplay where you use a two-word couplet to refer to another word which rhymes with the second word of the couplet. So. So to give you an example uh, of ones that are in uh, in sort of everyday use in the UK, butcher's hook is used to mean the word look. And you can then say... Just so, because hook rhymes with look. Exactly. It's that simple. Precisely. Right. Okay, so give me another example. Uh, so let's say loaf. People use loaf of bread to say head. Uh, and I ought to add that you don't necessarily have to use both words of this couplet to mean the other word. So, so you could say loaf to mean head, and you could say butchers to mean look. Use your loaf is a very common uh, phrase in the UK. So butcher's hook means look. Correct. Give it a butcher's hook, give it a look. Give it a butcher's, yeah. And you could then just say, give it a butcher's. Mm -hmm. This is like a secret language of the Cockney people. (laughs) Is that so poor people can communicate without rich people understanding? It's an interesting one. Uh, Cockney rhyming slang is curious because if if you ask a Brit for examples of Cockney rhyming slang, they'll give you reams and reams of them. And in actual fact, a lot of them are not in real life usage. A lot of them are just ones that maybe were used a long time ago or that people bring out as examples of Cockney rhyming slang, but they're not in everyday use. Now, you're you're Scottish. I'm Scottish, yeah. So you grew up in where? Edinburgh or something? Uh, I grew up in Edinburgh. I lived in London for 10 years. So if you went down into uh, within the earshot of Bose Bells or whatever, you would hear people in the working class neighborhoods still talking a lot of Cockney stuff? Oh, yes. I mean, all over the UK, people will use, like the examples I gave you, butchers, loaf, uh, people say Jackie's to mean Jackie Onassis, glasses. Um, you know, let me, let me put so my Jackie's Jackie on. So Jackie Onassis rhymes with glasses. So you could say Jackie Onassis to mean glasses, and then you could just drop the thing that rhymes. So there's really no way you know what the heck you're talking about and just call it Jackie's, which means glasses. Exactly. And those ones are in use across the UK. Jackie's. So, yep. That's very complicated. Okay, getting back to our original question then, why is your book called The Septic's Companion? You were right to start with. Septic tank uh, is rhyming slang for yank, which to a Brit is anyone in America. Septic tank. So you could call a yank a septic tank if you're Cockney, and then if you're really uh, casual with the language, just shorten it by calling it a septic. So Cockney people can call a Yankee a septic. Correct. There you go. So this is the, the septic's companion. Now, just to get a few more of the ground rules here, when we're talking about Britain, it's always confusing. You've got Great Britain, you've got the United Kingdom, 
and you've got England. What's the difference between Great Britain and United Kingdom? This is an amusing one because... Uh, one of the things that, that Brits get annoyed about is Americans not understanding which parts of UK, you know, is everything in England, is Scotland in England. And and quite honestly, I have a lot of sympathy because a lot of Brits don't really understand the difference between the parts of the UK either when it comes down to is Northern Ireland in Great Britain and this kind of stuff. So uh, Great Britain or United... So let me start with the United Kingdom. The United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland is a country. So when you say the United Kingdom, you're talking about the realm and that includes Northern Ireland. Correct. And if you say Great Britain, are you talking not about a political realm, but about an island? You were talking about England, Scotland, Wales. So that's the island. It's called Great Britain. Correct. And you were incorrect to include Northern Ireland in Great Britain because it's just flat out not on that island. It's on an island called Ireland. Yep, correct. And the island of Ireland, it has two political uh, zones. It's got Northern Ireland, which is part of the United Kingdom, and the Republic of Ireland, which is four-fifths of the island. Correct, yeah. Got it. Okay. Um, I'm just going to ask you a few of these, and we'll talk about it. Um, Baltic. Baltic. Baltic, yes. Very cold. So is that just because the Baltics are up in the north? Yeah, I think it really is that simple. So it's like Baltic out. Yep. It's like we could say it's Alaskan out. Uh, yes. Similar, but we don't. Bangers. I see that on the menus. You want some bangers? Yep. What is and, that? And usually in bangers and mash. Bangers are just sausages. The etymology is a little vague, but it likely comes from the fact that the sausages bang if they're sausages with thick skins and you uh, fry them for a little too long. Or they pop when they're cooking. Yeah. Bangers. Oh, okay. Well, you have, you have crackers at Christmas, right? Little toys that pop? We do. All right. Now, on a bank holiday, you might have bangers. What's a bank holiday? <laughs> um, bank, so, so to a Brit, uh, a holiday is not only uh, a, a sort of preset holiday by the state. It's also just any time off work. And a bank holiday is uh, traditionally a day when the banks are shut. And so this is, a, this is a state holiday when the banks are shut. So in our country, President's Day, uh, I don't know, uh, Veterans Day, uh, a day when the banks are shut, yep. you would just call a holiday a bank holiday. Yeah, that's School true. would be out, banks are closed. It's a holiday, bank holiday. Yeah, and, and actually bank holidays have become a little bit more, they're harder to nail down these days. Many people working in the UK will get bank holidays off. Many people will not get bank holidays off and they'll get a day in lieu instead. But nobody's beavering on a bank holiday. <laughs> beavering meaning kind of working away busily, of course. Is that what beavering means? Yeah, it does indeed, yeah. And I think, again, it's just much like, you know, beaver is kind of chewing away. So beavers are like busy as a, a busy, what do we say, a busy bunny or a busy... Yeah, busy. We could say beaver. So busy, busy as a bee. beaver. Yeah. Okay, so beavering is working hard. Yep, it is indeed. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Chris Ray. Chris Ray is a Scotsman, and he's written a book called The Septic's Companion. And septic is, of course, uh, the short for septic tank, which rhymes with yank. So this is The Yankee's Companion, How Americans Can Get Over the Language Barrier. Uh, it's just so much fun reading. It's basically a, a dictionary of words that Americans will encounter, and it will cause them some confusion. Chris, I'd like to just go on a couple of words here, just for fun here. Afters. When you're looking on the menu, it says afters. What are we looking at there? Yeah, you're looking at desserts. Um, it's it's an interesting one that we don't we don't call appetizers befores, but uh, we do call them starters. And you see that a little bit on U.S. menus, so that's reasonably well known. But so there's some confusion. An entree is that's our big course. Yeah, that's true. We would call that a main course. And what is an entree for you? Um, an entree is a starter for it's us. It's an appetizer. Yes, yes. There is a little bit. Um, there is a little bit of confusion on that one. I really do admit that is confusing. Okay. Now, uh, sometimes somebody it's bad weather out. And they want to put on their anorak, right? Yeah. Am I pronouncing that right? Anorak. Uh, you're pronouncing that exactly right. Okay. So that that's what we would call a parka. Yeah. Exactly. It's supposedly the word anorak also means someone who's a bit kind of nerdy about a particular topic. There's a bit of a debate about the etymology of it, but uh, historically in the UK, we had uh, very tightly controlled radio, and some of the radio stations broadcast from ships offshore to avoid the rules. And the fans of those radio stations would go out and stand on the ships and, uh, you know, to take part in the radio programs, all wearing anoraks. And it's possible that the word anorak, as, as meaning sort of a nerdy person, came from the description of those fans by the, the radio program people. So an anorak is a geek. Yeah, Exactly. Because he wears a waterproof jacket to be on a radio show. Yeah. Obviously. And anti-clockwise. Of course, we have counterclockwise. Yeah, I don't know how we ended up doing that differently. Anti-clockwise. But so yes. If you say counterclockwise in Britain, it's not right. I, th I mean, it's the case with a lot of uh, words. If you're American, Brits get a lot of exposure to American television and this kind of stuff. But also with this, with this particular one, it's reasonably easy to guess at. But certainly you'll get a double take if you use that. So if you're going into a roundabout, you don't go anti-clockwise. 
because the British drive on the left side of the road, you're going to go into this. You're not going to stop at a stop sign, and you're going to go clockwise. Correct. And if you have an articulated lorry, what does that mean? <laughs> uh, a, a lorry is uh, what Americans would call um, a, a big truck, and an articulated uh, lorry is one that it, that's kind of that's articulated, that's kind of bent in the middle, so that the cab part will separate from the, okay, from the so container uh, part. How about blimey? Where does that come from? Blimey. You hear that on movies a lot. Yeah, and that's true. Or the, the sort of longer phrase, core blimey, is like an older verse in the same thing. Um, I think it's, it's reasonably certain that the etymology of that is from the phrase, God blind me. And, and that comes from uh, some sort of version of, may God blind me if this is not so. Okay, I could see that in medieval times and then just kind of evolving into blimey. Yeah, but blimey, blimey. blimey now is very much a, a, an everyday phrase in the UK. Now, I like to say bloody. It's bloody hot. But when I say that, other people act like I'm cursing or swearing. Is it really a, a bad word, bloody? It's, it, in, in that context, it's maybe... It's like damned, isn't it? It's very like damn in, in that sense. You'd never put it up in you know, a presentation you were doing, but you, know, you wouldn't get fired for using it ever, I don't think. So it's, it's just a... A strong word. It's a sort of mild swear word. You, you'd slap your children if they said it. Bloody mean of you. <laughs> exactly. Sort of yeah. thing, or uh, bloody clever. Where did that word come from, bloody? I think it's from uh, By Our Lady. This is another, another So another you know, God blind me yeah. sort of thing. So a lot of the uh, Christian sort of medieval heritage of England survives in its, in its bloody language. Yep, true. All right. Bob's your uncle. I love that when people say Bob's your uncle. Yeah, I hope you're not going to ask me where that comes from because I have no idea. I just hardly, it's, you know, <laughs> it makes sense when somebody says it, but I have a hard time explaining it. How do you define, oh, Bob's your uncle? It's kind of like, you know, you're done, you know, you're, that's it. You know, you, you, It's kind of like, well, obviously, right? Yeah, kind of. It's like, that's it complete. You know, you, once you complete these steps, Bob's your uncle. I you see. Know, you're done. So you follow the directions carefully. One, two, three, and Bob's your uncle. Exactly, yeah. Turn left at the bank, down, down the road, and, you know, Bob's and it, your uncle. It's not rocket science. Bob's your uncle. Yep. Very nice. Chris, we've just uh, scratched the surface, but it's a fascinating thing, studying the, the language barrier between Britain and America. Chris has written The Septics Companion. Chris's website is septicscompanion.com. Chris, uh, in Britain, you would say cheers. Does that mean sort of thanks? Yep, cheers means pretty much thanks. We might also say a little bit more informally ta or ta very much. Ta. And uh, ta, where, where, what would that be from? Uh, I believe it's from Scandinavian word talk, okay. meaning thank you. Uh, all the Scandinavians say talk, so in England you just drop the K, talk. Hmm. Talk very much. Thank you. All right, what's this about Queen's right. English? Chris also maintains a likewise tongue-in-cheek blog about life in America from an expat's perspective at septicscompanion.com. Next, we'll look into the impulse to preserve the rags and bones of saints and other important people, how that's helped to shape the world we live in, and what those relics still say today. Peter Manso takes your calls at 877-333-RICK, coming right up on Travel with Rick Steves. We're at 877-333-7425 as we invite Peter Manso to join us now on Travel with Rick Steves. He teaches writing at Georgetown University and is a graduate student in religion. 
Peter's book, Rag and Bone, describes how relics have shaped our history, provided destinations for pilgrims and other travelers, and still provide an interesting framework for pondering some of the important issues of life and faith. Peter, thanks for joining us. Great to be here, Rick. Thank you. You know, you wrote in your book that, actually, St. Paul wrote, faith is trust in things unseen. You quoted St. Paul. Um, That really relates to relics, doesn't it? It does. Relics are fascinating to me because they are at once something very much seen. I mean, the point of them is to go and see them, in fact. But for people who believe in them, they are a key to open a door to the unseen, basically. They are small physical objects that, for believers, um, relate to a whole universe of belief. And for me, as someone who writes about religion and, and loves traveling, they are always on my itinerary whenever I'm traveling. So you wrote in your book, Relics are a place where the abstraction of faith meets the reality of the physical world. Yes, I think it's easy to uh, assume that when we talk about religion, we're only talking about the unseen. We're only talking about prayer or people's beliefs. But we wouldn't have anything to talk about with religion if it was not a very real phenomenon. Whatever the content of our beliefs are, religious artifacts exist and they are powerful objects and they need to be contended with no matter what we believe about them in themselves. Now, a Catholic knows how to approach a relic, I think, properly, and a lot of Protestants sort of don't get it. Um, I'm a Protestant. Are you a Catholic? I was raised as a Catholic, and interestingly, um, as an American Catholic, growing up far from where the vast majority of relics are, which is in Catholic Europe, I didn't grow up with too much awareness of them. We knew what relics were. We Mm -hmm. knew what they signified. We knew that they were important and holy and, and all the rest. But they were as foreign to us growing up, I think, as they were to many American Protestants. Well, to a Protestant, it seems like you're worshiping something that's just a thing. But in actuality... Wouldn't you say a relic is not to be worshipped, but it's an aid to help you worship? Well, that's exactly right. And Catholics think about it. it, The official line about relics is that they are not too different from an icon or a crucifix or a statue of of a saint, in that all of these things are not the gods themselves, not the saints themselves, but are only aids to the imagination, aids to the religious imagination. They are basically conduits for your prayers. If you Hmm. direct your devotion toward them, they'll get your prayers where they need to go. They have a way of sanctifying in a very real and direct way the spaces in which they appear. For example, every Catholic church around the world has a relic, whether or not it's on display. It is hidden deep within the altar of the church, and it is the presence of that relic that truly makes the place holy and makes the altar someplace where the liturgy, where the mass can take place in an effective way. So that's almost like a legality, I guess. I was at a church in uh, Volterra in Italy, And my guide took me to the church, and it was not a very well-known church, and he lifted up the cloth on every one of the altars in the chapels. There must have been six or eight chapels in that church. Lifted up the white cloth, and he showed me a little cut-out piece of marble, a little patch. And he said, under that patch is the relic that sort of legitimizes this altar. And I, I didn't realize that. In most American cities, you see that a number of churches are no longer serving a religious purpose. Some of them uh, in Washington, where I live now, have been turned into condominiums, for example. And in each of these churches, if they were Catholic churches to begin with, there has been a ceremony that has taken place when the church is no longer in service. There's a ceremony in which the relic is removed from the altar and desanctifies this church, basically. Wow. So uh, formally, physically decommissioned, and they yank the uh, relic out. It's like taking the SIM card out of a cell phone. It's not going to work anymore. (laughs) It's exactly like that. Unlike a SIM card, though, you might just get rid of when you're done with it. These, of course, are treated with great respect, and they are taken to another place to hold them until they can be put into another altar in another church or just held permanently. Fascinating. I'm speaking with Peter Manso, who writes a book called Rag and Bone. Peter's website is petermanso.com, P-E-T-E-R-M-A-N-S-E-A-U.com, and we're talking about relics. William's on the phone in Miami. William, thanks for your call. Hey, Rick, how's it going? Good. Got a thought on rags and bones for Peter here? Well, yeah. My question is that since, you know, quite a few of these holy relics were purchased during the time of the Crusades and are probably, you know, kind of dubious authenticity, are the churches, like, in possession of them right now, are they interested in checking the authenticity given the new technologies available now, or are they just rather not know after all this time? Um, 
You, you open up a whole range of questions, in fact. And first of all, I want to say that um, you mentioned the Crusades, and it's worth remembering that in some ways this um, was fought on behalf of relics. Uh, many of the Crusaders who went to Jerusalem to take back the Holy Land really went because they wanted to line their pockets with these religious uh, treasures and bring them back to Europe. So most of the artifacts that we see are in churches around Europe. That's where they came from, and that, that's how they ended up there. And you're right that they've been in possession of various churches for so long, many of their provenances are unknown. Uh, they've often been gotten by ill-gotten means, and only now, as science has developed to identify these things, is it really possible to ask a question about their authenticity and to really find an answer. In the book, I spent a lot of time with a, um, a paleopathologist in Paris, and he has made it his project to identify and to test through DNA and radiocarbon dating a lot of these religious artifacts. Most of his work has been on a piece of rib bone that for the past century has been believed to be the last remains of Joan of Arc. Now, Joan of Arc was burned at the stake, and so it, it's not often thought that she had any remains at all, and yet this one relic has persisted. So he has made it his work to authenticate this relic or de-authenticate the relic. And the church, to its credit, has been uh, fully on board with this. They, they want to know uh, the truth about the objects that they revere. Well, I was in Paris last week myself, and they had the uh, crown of thorns on display. Has anybody checked that one? Not as far as I know, and there's really not much that can be done with some of these relics to determine uh, how old they are or, in the case of bodily remains, who they once belonged to, because when you're testing for DNA, you need another sample to test it against. Um, but I also think that there is something significant about relics, regardless of whether or not they are authentic, regardless of whether or not they are, quote-unquote, the real thing. And that's just because for the past, in the case of something like the crown of thorns, for the past more than a thousand years, here's an object that has been the object of veneration for untold millions of people. And that in itself makes it religiously significant. It makes well, they, it worth thinking about. Yeah, they built St. John's Teleport, didn't they? Actually, the king paid more for the thorns than he paid for the great church to contain it, the San Chapelle. <laughs> I mean, so it was important a thousand years ago or 800 years ago when they, when they brought it to Paris. And I think that's a cool point that Peter makes is that even if it is bogus from a non-religious point of view... A thousand years of faith and focus actually gives it some sort of connection and, and it, it, it takes on a value in itself, doesn't it? Is that what you're saying, Peter? That's exactly what I'm saying. And I, and I should say that I come to this book not a, as a believer, but not entirely as a skeptic either, because I, I'm not interested in, in debunking these things um, so much as I am in, in examining the stories that have surrounded them for a thousand years. And more importantly to me as a journalist, I'm interested in the lives that currently revolve around them. I'm interested oh, yeah. in the people who, who still make these things the object of their faith. Well, I find it fascinating. When I go to the large churches, I go, always go in the side chapels and check for the reliquies and things mm -hmm. like that. Well, one quick aside, Rick. I stopped by Chartres. Yeah. And uh, I noticed you mentioned there about the Mary's birthing veil. Right. That uh, it had been carbon dated. Uh, they didn't have it on display, though. Right. And plus, they had so much scaffolding up, it was not worth going to. I think carbon dating is bad news for relics, William. <laughs> I think so, too. Thanks for your well, call, William. Thank you very much. Yeah. You know, uh, William brings up an interesting point, Peter, that if you got, let's say, the Vatican, which its legitimacy is resting upon the fact that it is built upon the tomb of St. Peter, uh, and all of a sudden there's new technology that lets you take those bones under there and, and do some testing, they're not eager to challenge the legitimacy of the whole thing. I don't blame them for wanting to keep that in the dark. And like you, I don't think that's the point. I think that for 1,500, 1,800 years, people have been worshiping on that spot. Who really cares if it's the actual relic? Because people aren't worshiping that thing that is an aid for them to worship God. That's exactly right. And I think that we need to give the church some credit in, in terms of being open to the use of science for understanding more about these objects that have been so long a part of the faith. In fact, there's a long history, well, not long in, the, in terms of the lifetime of relics, but at least uh, for the past hundred years or so, of the church bringing in uh, experts in tissue preservation, for example, as a way of preserving relics. Um, and so they are not totally ob mm -hmm. objectionable to science, uh, especially when it can be used to benefit the relics that they venerate. You know, you can relate that to 20th century history and think about the tomb of Lenin in, in Red Square or Elvis Presley's artifacts or all the people that want to see Gandhi's spinning wheel or other examples like this. Uh, it, it even kind of lets us understand maybe the impact of relics in the old days to see how people do this uh, pop kind of culture stuff today. 
That's right. And, you know, I really believe that relics predate religion and will survive religion. <laughs> and it's not only a religious instinct, just as it's not only a Christian instinct. You find relics in every religious tradition nearly, and you find them outside of religious tradition as well. And the fascinating thing about it in terms of travel is that wherever they exist, they become the site of pilgrimages. People hmm. come to see them um, by the thousands. Oh, I've waited in line hours to see Lenin's body. There's nothing religious about that. And, well, I guess communism was a religion and he was the, the prophet. Um, well, all religion have some interest in relics. Do some religions have more than others? Well, each religion has a slightly different understanding of the body in death. And you talk about what a big deal Buddha's tooth is down in Sri Lanka, right? Buddha's tooth is a popular relic in a few different places. Um, I visited the one in Sri Lanka. There's also a popular relic of Buddha's tooth in China and also in, in Myanmar. The tooth and candy in Sri Lanka that I visited is really the center of Sri Lankan society. It is the focal point of what it means to be Sri Lankan is the tooth of the Buddha. Wow. We've got Katie on the phone from Victoria, British Columbia. Katie, thanks for your call. Hi. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're talking with Peter Manso, who writes Rag and Bone. Do you got a comment about relics for Peter? I do. Well, I have a question um, mm -hmm. about approaching relics or viewing them in churches. Is there any protocol or custom that you have to observe or that you should observe when approaching these relics? I think that your best bet is to follow local custom as best you can. And so if you are in a uh, Catholic church in Italy, let's say you may want to cover your head if the women around you, if the locals are covering their heads. I spent a lot of time looking at relics in Turkey, and when you go to a, a mosque in Turkey, um, you most certainly don't want to be wearing shorts, for example. And so you just want to follow the lead of the locals as best you can. And if you do that, I think that you will find that um, your interest in the relics is, is welcome, and, and the locals will want to talk to you about them and tell you why they are important to them. But always follow the lead of the locals, I think, is the, is the creed of relics. And, and Katie, it's easy to do if, because if it's a big-time relic, there's usually a bit of a line to get to the front to look into that murky glass case and see the, the uh, vocal cords of uh, St. Anthony and Pedro, right? And you got a chance to look at everybody ahead of you and see what they're doing. And it just makes sense, as Peter says, to uh, uh, assume the same uh, respectful manner that all of the pilgrims there are assuming as you uh, pass in front of that relic. I've also found, Katie, and this might be helpful as well, that there are a wonderful opportunity to talk to people in a way that you might not be able to just walking out around a, a new city. The people who are there who, who make a habit of coming to see the relics for reasons of religious belief, they want to tell you about them. I think they are flattered by your curiosity that mm -hmm. you have come so far to be a part of their life in this way. It can be a great way to go past just asking directions in a new place and really start to make friends. Nicole's on the line in Dallas. Hi, Nicole. Thanks for your call. Got a comment on relics? Uh, yes. I'm Catholic, and I've seen a lot of reliquaries in Europe, but one of the most spiritual experiences I had was actually at a mosque in Istanbul. We took the ferry up the Golden Horn to Ayyub and went to the Ayyub Sultan Mosque where Ayyub uh, Ansari is buried, and it's supposed to be the fourth holiest place in Islam after um, Mecca, Medina, and Jerusalem. And so there were all these Muslims there that had come from probably all over the place, praying at the tomb, and um, the whole complex was just really peaceful and beautiful. It was really a beautiful experience. Boy, I would highly um, second that thought so people can understand this. E-Y-U-P, E-Y-U-P. It's, for me, far and away the most powerful people-watching, spiritual, Muslim pilgrimage kind of experience a, a tourist can have in Istanbul, because that, as you mentioned, is a pilgrimage destination, whereas the Blue Mosque and Hagia Sophia are cruise ship destinations more so. Exactly. There were not as many people, and there was definitely an air of prayer and calm as opposed to gawking <laughs> around the place. And people were visiting outside the area. I mean, it was just a real feeling of um, a, a community. Community, conviviality, uh, and also a, a conservative sort of Muslim fundamentalism. And that gets you tuned into a, a very interesting dynamic in the secular country of Turkey that there's a lot of push for more and more connection of mosque and state instead of separation of mosque and state. Nicole, thanks for your uh, insight. That's a great tip. What struck me when I was there was uh, the number of families outside, and all of the little boys were dressed in these great flowing silver capes with crowns on for some particular uh, ceremony that they were engaged in. And 
It was a great reminder to me that it, it's so easy from afar to think of mosques as places where only religion happens, but they are hubs of the community as well. And often the relics are the focal point, and so the families will crowd in and be near to the relic, and then they'll go outside and they'll get themselves an ice cream cone and, and be just like families here, out enjoying the day. And just like when my wife and I uh, worry about our daughter going to the mall and dressing too racy, I remember the families at Eop in Istanbul and the cute teenage girls with their high heels and their trendy clothes underneath their religious garb. And you could see the real dynamic of their faith and their struggles and their growing up and, and their multi-generational approach to things in the modern world, meeting the traditional world, all around a church which had a relic that brings a lot of pilgrims together. And Turkey is such a fascinating place for religious travel lately because while there are all of these Muslim sites and uh, the Muslim faithful as well as tourists go to see them, there's also a whole range of Christian sites that have become a focus of, of growing Christian tourism from North America mostly. And there's a nice intersection of these two communities. They often bump into each other at sites and, and seeing the coming together of two groups of people traveling for reasons of faith is, is really um, eye-opening. You know, that's a very good point, Peter, because a lot of tourists want to see the house of the Virgin Mary in Ephesus, and it's also a Muslim holy spot because Mary and Jesus and John the Baptist and lots of biblical characters are also venerated in the Muslim faith. What I love about traveling, especially as a writer who writes about religion, is the opportunity to discover these commonalities that we might not know we have until we're on the spot and meeting people and asking them why they are there. I've been talking with Peter Manceau, who writes Rag and Bone, a fascinating book looking at relics and how they intersect with our travels and how we can more thoughtfully approach relics in our travels. Peter, it's just been fascinating talking to you. You've seen a lot of relics in your work. Finish off with just a, a thought of the, the most powerful personal experience you had in your research on relics. I was up in um, in Kashmir in, um, in northern India, and as I went there, I, I was aware of it as a dangerous place. There's a lot of sectarian violence that happens there. And I went to see a, a contested relic. There is a hair of the Prophet Muhammad that certain Hindu nationalist groups have started to claim as their own, saying it's not, in fact, a Muslim relic, but a Hindu relic. I spent some time with a family that for eight generations has been the guardian of the relic. And what was most touching to me was meeting this old gentleman who grew up as the watchkeeper, the safekeeper of the relic. When he heard what types of traveling I was doing, he wanted desperately to know about other relics around the world. He wanted to know about Christian relics and Buddhist relics because it gave him some indication that his life had so much in common with those around the world whom he would never meet, but they did have this one article of faith in common. I love it. Relics can help us connect with God, and at the same time, they help people connect with other cultures and other people. Peter Manso, author of Rag and Bone, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Rick. Peter Manso's website is Peter Manso, that's spelled M-A-N-S-E-A-U dot com. Up next... We'll finish off today's program with some helpful suggestions from Dave Fox on how to put together the kind of travel journal that makes your trip come alive, to help you vividly capture and relive your own experience, and to give others a meaningful insight into your journey. His website and links to his travel blog are at TravelJournaling.com. And Dave joins us in just a moment on Travel with Rick Steves. Živjo, ja sem Patina Hitim, prihajam iz Bleda, iz Slovenije in potujem z Riki Stevesom. So that was Slovenian. And my name is Tina Hiti and I come from Bled, Slovenia and I'm traveling with Rick Steves. Živjo, ja sem Tina, pišem se Hiti, prihajam iz Bleda, iz Slovenije in potujem z Rikom Stevesom. If my house was burning down and I had a chance just to grab one thing, and everybody was out of the house, of course, no doubt in my mind, I would grab my travel journals. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm joined today by a man who's written a book called Globe Jotting, How to Write Extraordinary Travel Journals. Dave Fox, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. So you've written a book on how to write travel journals. Is there actually a market for that? Is there? <laughs> well, I hope so. Um, I think there is. You know, I've been teaching journaling classes for many years, travel journaling classes. And um, what I ended up doing was turning my class into a book. And I wrote the book and I started teaching the classes because I found that so many people go on trips and they try to keep a travel journal, but they run into one of two common problems. They either 
find that their journals are very pedestrian and kind of bland and they don't really capture the full spirit of their journeys. Or an even more common problem is they just can't find time to write in the middle of this big adventure that they're having. And so I teach in my book how to get a lot written down in a short amount of time and also how to make it more meaningful and really capture the spirit of the journeys that we're on. So it's worth the trouble, in other words. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that, you know, photography is how most people tend to document their trips. And I love taking pictures when I travel, and I'm not knocking photography at all. But photography, you are dealing only with the visual. You're dealing with what you see through a viewfinder. And to me, journaling is so much more holistic of an experience. We can capture all of our senses, what we hear, what we smell and taste and, and our physical sensations. We can write the stories that we hear from the people who we meet and, and the people whose paths we cross. And then there's another part of the journey that is really, I think, almost impossible to capture in a photograph. And that's what I call the inner journey. And that's all of the discoveries, the uh, inner self-discoveries that we have as we're traveling. So there's something organic about writing a journal to me, and it's pencil and paper. Now, I've got a laptop, too. How do you deal with that? Do you journal with a laptop, or is it better to be sitting under a tree with an incredible view with a, a pencil and a pad? I tell people, ideally, you know, do whatever works for you, but I'm not a big fan of journaling with laptops. I'm a professional travel writer myself. I travel with a laptop, but I journal uh, like you with a pencil and a little spiral notebook. There's just something more intimate, I think, about doing it that way. And you don't have batteries failing and, and hard drives crashing, and, and people are a lot less likely to steal a notebook than they are a laptop, that kind Plus of thing. Plus, you're on a trail, or you're on a gondola, or you're in the middle of a crowded subway, and a thought comes to you, you're not going to power exactly. up your laptop. Yeah. And if you're not geared up to have that notebook, you're going to miss that opportunity. Yeah. Now, you hit something that is fundamental to making a good journal. I, I just want to make this point a little more clearly. It's not a log. You know, you don't want to... I had breakfast at 8. Right. We caught the bus at 9. How, how do you get away from that? Because that really is a boring pile of data. Yeah, and I think that that's very commonly what people do. I've got a lot of different techniques that I offer in, in my book for different ways to approach your journaling. I think it's important to um, really try to capture a lot of details. I think I'll give you an example. Uh, when I'm guiding tours in Scandinavia and we're taking this cruise through the fjords and people write in their journals, the fjords were beautiful. Well, that's not a news flash. The fjords have been beautiful for, for thousands of years, and hopefully they'll continue to be if we're kind to our planet. So I encourage people to really go for a lot of vivid detail. Talk about the granite cliffs that swoop down and, and plunge into the turquoise waters below and the mist that settles over the fjords and the burgundy farmhouses that freckle the land and even the, the seagulls chasing the boats, even the diesel smell and the sound of the engine clashing with this pristine nature. So you capture a lot of details and you really paint a picture of, of what you're experiencing. I'm right there with you. I mean, it's <laughs> cool. And on the deck of the boat, all the tourists are so nervous about all the incredible sights all around them. They're just shuttling around like nervous roosters, I felt like. you know. Yeah, just, yeah. Where's the, the bib to catch the drool? I mean, this is just <laughs> so beautiful. Jot all that stuff down. Exactly. And a lot of it is a pile of garbage, but you get home and then you can distill it into something that's very nice, I think, and, and get some good travel writing up. Yeah. And, you know, I think you just hit on a really important point. I think one of the biggest mistakes people make is they try to do their best writing while they're traveling. And I think that what happens as a result is they don't get much written. We don't have a lot of time when we're traveling to create the perfect travel essay. Yeah. So what I tell people is think of your journals as a rough draft. Think of them as a place where you're collecting as many memories as you can in as short amount of a time as you can. If you want to create great writing, wonderful. Do it when you get home. Take your journals and you know, mold them into something more polished when you're home. But when you are traveling, write fast and get as much down out of the pages as quickly as you can. Because you know, even the most dedicated of travel journalers are travelers first and journalers second. We don't want our journaling to eat up a big chunk of our actual travel experience. Well, it's not why you're traveling. The journal exactly. is a souvenir. The journal is, to me, the in fact, you called it the ultimate souvenir. Yeah, and, and I really think it is. It's, it's you know, the, that word souvenir, it, it comes from the French verb to remember, and it's a memory. And, and think about, you know, when we talk about souvenirs these days, you know, cheap T-shirts and snow globes and things like that. And a well-written travel journal is going to collect your memories better than anything else I can think the, of. The snow globe's going to be up in the attic, I'm <laughs> sure. But that journal, and I'll tell you right now with uh, 30 years of travel experience under the bridge, I don't remember those first trips. I pull out that journal, it's still there. It's yeah. a beautiful, vivid memory. And... In a lot of ways, it's more vivid than the photography, like you say, because it's what I was feeling. It comes back to you, yeah, and I think that we have these uh, just these intense emotional experiences when we travel, and we learn so much about ourselves, and, and we can really learn a lot about ourselves by writing down our reactions to foreign places as we travel through them. So the, the essence of good travel writing relates to good journaling, assuming you're not just trying to write a ship's log. You're trying to catch these 
butterflies of thoughts and experiences and impressions as they flutter by. Because exactly. they flutter by and they're gone. Yeah. You know, to me, life is just, it's a series of stories that we're living. And travel ends up often being our, our best, our most exciting stories and the ones we really want to remember. I travel with two journals, actually. I've got a little tiny book in my pocket where I'm just catching stuff in no sense of any plot or any essay. It's just little scraps. I'm beachcombing. Yeah. And then back in the room, I've either got, in the old days, I had my empty book that I'd fill up. And now because of my work, I'd put it into my laptop. But it seems like it's important to be able to catch that stuff just in the raw and then later on fashion it into what you're trying to write. Yeah, I do the exact same thing. I'm always just writing down little notes throughout the day of things I want to maybe flesh out a little bit later. When I read good travel writing, when I read something, I go, here's a keen observer. Mm -hmm. If you're not a keen observer, you're just flipping through somebody else's travel brochure. Right. How do you become a keen observer? I think, again, it's really going for those uh, those more intimate details. One of the things I find about journaling is that it makes us keener observers because once you get into a habit of journaling, you know, it's kind of like starting an exercise program. It can be really tough at first. And after you do it long enough, it just becomes a natural part of your travel experience. When I'm traveling now, I am constantly in the back of my mind. It's like, what am I going to write about today? What am I, you know, this is this is going to be some great journaling later on when I find some time to sit down and write this evening. And as I go through my day with that in mind, it makes me more aware of the world around me. It makes me more aware of, of those little details I was talking about. So I think it's something that really comes naturally once you start journaling. It, it's a almost a Zen kind of experience that just kind of falls into place. I think it's a skill. I think you're right. And the more you practice it, the better you get at it. And you read some of these like the world's greatest travel writers, and they are just really good at this. Right, right. I remember the day I became a travel writer. I was in Dartmoor in England. I hiked to this little Stonehenge-type circle. It was my own private Stonehenge. Hmm. It was just me and these long-haired goats in a heavy <laughs> fog. And it was the most dramatic experience to be there all alone with the birds and the goats and my own private 7,000 years old or whatever stone circle. And I realized, man, this is an experience I'll treasure for the rest of my life. Yeah. And I wrote it down. I wrote it down. That was when I was a kid. And now, as you said, you become tuned into that as you're traveling. You catch these images that you want to treasure. I'm amazed at how much time I spend traveling and how many real great nuggets you get out of it. It's like gold panning. Mm -hmm. Well, and also, isn't it exciting for you to go back and look at that journal you wrote when you were so much younger and kind of look at the person you were then and contrast the way you traveled then with the person you are now and the traveler that you are now? I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about journaling, and we're talking with Dave Fox, who's written a book called Globe Jotting: How to Write an Extraordinary Travel Journal. You know, I got to know this book pretty well, Dave, and Obviously, you're a good writer. You're a good writer. Well, and, and it's very practical, very entertaining. Dave, when I'm traveling, I find more and more I have to collect quotes from people. Mm. It's just beautiful. I was just in Tehran, and yeah. I was crossing the street, and the person next to me said, now we go to Chechnya, because this traffic is so bad in Tehran, they liken it to wow. the war tour in Chechnya. Mm. That said volumes right there about traffic in, in Tehran. I was talking to mothers of why they live in a theocracy in Tehran, and they said, well, we don't want our girls to be raised like Britney Spears. See, there's, a, there's an insight that I got mm -hmm. picking it up from talking to somebody, and you can bet my pencil was out and I was writing that down. Do you find that in your journaling, you both observe how you're feeling, what you're seeing, and also try to capture those connections you made with people? I do try to capture those connections I make with people, and, and I think that I tend to uh, not pull out my notepad while they're there. You know, I think that you and I maybe write with different uh, approaches and different goals in mind. But I think that um, just remembering quotes, you know, even if it means uh, slipping around the corner or, or something and, and scribbling something down quickly, um, it, it's a great thing to do. We cross paths with so many fascinating people who are different from us when we travel, and it's great to include them in our journals. I've been well into a trip back before I was a professional travel writer, just writing journals. And I remember I was crazed to write these travel journals, and I would, I would lose sleep to make sure I was up to date on my journal. And sometimes it occurred to me, this is boring. I mean, nothing interesting is happening to me. And just by looking, assessing what I was experiencing, I was realizing my deficiencies. And I went out there and 
made things happen for the next section of that trip, and my journal became much more interesting. It was an ironic thing that my interest in having an interesting journal actually drove me to have a better trip. Yeah, definitely. I think that uh, that's kind of what I was talking about a couple minutes ago. I think that our journaling drives our travel experiences. It enhances our travel experiences, and we have a more intimate connection with the places around us when we travel as as keen observers, like you were saying. Now, you said if you're going to journal correctly or, or well, you need to elude your inner sensor. What's that? Yes. Your inner sensor, I think we all have this little creature in our brain who is in there and, and he or she is serving several different purposes to try to kind of protect us from our own thoughts. But these tend to be overzealous little creatures and, and they tell us to, you know, don't write this down because uh, it, it might be wrong or somebody might not like it. Or one of the great things journaling can do for our travels is when we are in a culture that we don't understand, we try to be culturally sensitive travelers. We try to be respectful of the culture. But it's completely natural to feel at times uncomfortable, at times frustrated with the places we are in. And you can journal about these, these, these feelings that you're having as a way of working through them and as a way of understanding that, hey, this is, this is my own foreign perspective. Your inner sensor often will tell you not to write these things down. You don't want to write negative things about the place you're visiting. And I actually find that writing them down in a journal is a great way of dealing with them with myself so that they're not coming out in my relations with, you know, people on the street who are going to otherwise be innocent victims of my cultural, uh, you know, just lack of local understanding and that kind of thing. So you have politically incorrect thoughts. I th- We all do. We all do. And it's true. I do, too. <laughs> and it does feel good to write them down. I think it's very important to travel with an open, non-judgmental mind. But the reality is whenever we are in a foreign place, there will be things we don't understand. I'm always seeing sweeping generalizations that I know are not fair, but they're my impression. And just the fact that they're my impression makes them legitimate enough to actually write down and then sort through. Exactly. And we can process through them in our writing. I, I talk in, in my book a little bit about how to you know, take a thought that's making you uncomfortable and actually kind of write your way through it and question it so that you maybe come to a better understanding of, of the place you're at and why you're feeling the way you're feeling. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Dave Fox, who's written a book called Globe Jotting: How to Write Extraordinary Travel Journals. Dave, you deal with this issue that teenage girls deal with, too, when they're writing a journal. <laughs> you're scaring me now. Who is this journal for? Is it my innermost ah. thoughts, or can I let mom and dad look at it? Right. I think that is one of the biggest fears that all journalers have, is what if somebody discovers these these private things I've written down? I suggest to people that when you write in your journal, you write it for yourself in at least the first go-round. You know, you can always go back and do another version, a public version later on. I think that when we journal for ourselves, we can become a lot more introspective and there's a lot of personal growth that goes with that. Now, on the other hand, a lot of people like to share their journals with others and, and travel blogging has become huge these days where people are, are actually journaling and their friends back home are reading their journals almost live as they go. And um, that's a great thing, too. I think what's important, though, is decide before you start, are you journaling for yourself or are you journaling for other people? If you're journaling for other people, you are going to censor your thoughts and you want to censor your thoughts. We don't want everybody to know every single thing that goes through our head, you know. But um, I think that when we write for ourselves, we really can learn a lot about ourselves. Blogging really is trendy. And I got to say, there's something addictive about it because Mm. it becomes a community that's traveling with you. Yeah. If it's just your friends and family or if it's more public... um, it's very easy to get a blogging software, and uh, anybody who's reasonably uh, adept at inputting in the Internet can keep a blog up to date. And I find it is one of the most enjoyable and rewarding and challenging uh, disciplines for me to, in a sense, journal. So it's fair to call a blog a journal? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a new kind of journal. You know, it's yeah. changing the way people are journaling, but it's exciting. I was in Vietnam in April, and I um, was out late one night. It was like 2 in the morning, and I was having some food with some people. And across the street from us, all of a sudden, these four ladies showed up with two huge pots of food and a stack of plastic chairs and tables. And they set up this makeshift restaurant out on the street at just, you know, two in the morning. And people started showing up and buying food from them. I thought it was one of the coolest things I had ever seen. I was back in my hotel room 20 minutes later blogging about it before I went to bed. And my friends who were, you know, back in Seattle at work we're, we're reading about it just a, a little while later, and it's so exciting for me to be able to share my travels share live that. with people like that. Yeah, I was just in a remote valley in Switzerland, Lauterbrunnen, and mm-hmm. I thought my day was over, and then I remembered, oh, there's that bar just 100 yards away where the, what do they call them, base jumpers. Right. Out. These guys that jump off a cliff with a parachute, basically. Right. And 
uh, a lot of them die. Most people just think they're crazies. And I thought, they're just crazies. Life is cheap for these guys. But I thought, <laughs> there's the bar. I'm going to go and see where they hang out and talk to them. I walked down there, took me an hour, had a beer, got to know these guys. It was so enlightening, and I came home inspired to add that to my blog. And the next day, people had read it, and they said, Rick, enjoyed your blog on the base jumpers. It's like people are traveling with you. Right. One great way to journal if you're with a group that I found in my tour guiding is let it be a group journal. And yeah. then let's say there's eight people. They want to share a journal, and they're on a 16-day trip. Two times, each person has the responsibility to write a dynamite report on that day. And then you only have to do one-eighth of the work. It's a sharing of all the whole group. And the quality is better. And when you get it home, you just print it up, uh, type it up, and everybody gets a copy. Have you encountered that in your journaling? Yeah, I, I have. It can be a lot of fun, and it captures the personalities of all the people you're traveling with, too, which is just as important a part of any trip that we go on is, is the people you have that experience with. Souvenir. Yeah, of there those you go. people. Dave, you write that travel can be a backdrop to self-discovery. Let's close just with one way travel has been a backdrop to self-discovery for you and how your journaling helped you discover that. I think that whenever we go into a place where we don't know the local rules, we are in a situation where we are left to improvise and to kind of make things up and, and, and bumble our way through things uh, because things don't come as naturally to us as they do in our normal environment. And we sometimes find ourselves doing things that we might not do at home and kind of finding these new parts of our own personality. When we write them down, we can really hang on to them and retain them and, and bring them home with us and, and grow and change as people. Beautiful. So in a sense, you become a cultural hybrid. Exactly. the best of different cultures. Dave Fox, author of Globe Jotting, How to Write an Extraordinary Travel Journal. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. You remember me when the west wind moves among the fields of barley. You can tell the sun in his jealous sky when we walked in fields Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. You can read Rick's travel blogs at our website, ricksteves.com. That's also where you'll find audio and video podcasts, program extras, and links to our guests. Thanks to Sarah McCormick, Pat O'Connor, Andrew Wakeling, and Robin Cronin, and to our colleagues at National Public Radio for their help with today's show. Our theme music is composed by Jerry Frank. Join us again next week for more on Travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His classic, Europe Through the Back Door, teaches the skills of smart travel. Along those same lines, Europe 101, History and Art for the Traveler, is a must-read for anyone who appreciates Europe's rich history and great art. To learn more about Rick's books, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.